1: if you're still listening, wear sunscreen. Do people still know Baz Luhrmann? Is that a thing? Look up the sunscreen song, whatever it's called. (laughs) Hi
2: guys, welcome to another episode of Slaughter. My name is Lucy and I am joined by Emma, outstanding teacher, award-winning pod- no, not award-winning podcaster,
1: someone created- (laughs) Nominated podcaster. Nominated. We could have a whole award ceremony where we're the only nominees. Like, oh, Best host of Slaughter Called Emma. I think I won it. Best, <laughs> Best teacher who does a podcast. Yeah. Lucy. Best British accent in this episode. <laughs>
2: yeah. I'm going to be telling you the story of Ursula and Sabina Erickson, which I've been meaning to do for quite a long time because do you remember before On Demand TV, when you would watch TV? When I'd watch so, Judge Judy
1: on YouTube.
2: Before that before then before that before say when you could wa you'd watch so much tv that you'd end up rewatching the same shows
1: when i used to have again. a complete tantrum if i missed the program i wanted to watch because yeah. that was it but i have to watch five hours of friends a day but i remember watching this
2: episode of motorway cops multiple times and i would never sit down now and watch motorway cops i, I just i was just watching what was on there were four channels and i feel like
1: are pretty much covered everything. <laughs> it was like an advert flicker.
2: Yeah. On this episode of Motorway Cops, I remember these two girls running onto the motorway. And this is what sort of sparked my interest in this case. But I had no idea that it was such a big sort of crime story. Do you know what I'm talking about?
1: Can you visualise sort of the the clip? I do. I remember watching this clip where the girls just run out into traffic. And it's quite disturbing it's so weird like more so than when we talk about other things when you watch the clip like it it's quite frightening in a weird way because you just it makes no sense yeah it makes zero sense so by the end of
2: this it will still make no fucking sense but we'll we'll do our best so this is um ursula and sabina um and they were born in sun s-u-n-n-e Um, which is a small town in Sweden in 1967 Um, and they lived with their mother and their older sister and I think they had a brother as well who's sometimes mentioned and but a lot of this information sort of I found conflicting information about this whole case um, because they're they're not really public about things there's there's not been a lot of interview well there's been no interviews but also um it's one that people theorize about but that maybe there's a lot of stuff that sort of i went to school with them and i can remember this which isn't really substantiated evidence so it's hard to know um, i mean i couldn't even get a clear answer as whether they are were identical twins or not to, oh. to that extent but some of this comes from a madness shared by two by david can um which is a book that was been written um, by someone who, and he looked in a lot of detail at a lot of the theories. But I also watched the BBC documentary about this. If you just go on YouTube, it's on there. And then I looked at some articles, so there's quite a few different sources that I used for this.
1: I feel like the lady doth protest too much. <laughs> like... I did research, I promise. And then I went to visit their hometown in Sweden, <laughs> but I couldn't get you a souvenir, so I just came straight back.
2: <laughs> so they, their father had one arm. Um, he lost the. <laughs> he lost the other. He lost the one that he lost in the Finnish Winter War, um, and he he didn't live with the family, so he was sort of um, I guess like a war hero or like a or someone who was was had experienced war, but he. At the very least, he experienced it. He'd done done some war. Um, In the 1980s, the family moved to Gothenburg, which, uh, again, was in Sweden. And the mother was arrested in the 1990s for shoplifting. Um, But other than that, there's not a lot of detail. Um, She may have been in an abusive relationship. There was some some suggestion that she might have had substance abuse issues as well. But again, uh, there's no real clear evidence. It's, It's sort of hearsay. The father was definitely an alcoholic, though social services also visited the home and they wrote logs about the family and they said that goats were roaming around the house now i'm not sure if that is a common swedish practice
1: (laughs) but it sort of sounds like a carl Pilkington story a little bit it's probably the roaming that makes it a problem like it's like oh the goats were penned peacefully in their area yeah like they're just clomping everywhere the the verb choice definitely doubts on whether the Legitimacy of these goats. It it suggests there's some aimlessness towards these goats. Like, if it's like the goats were (laughs) heading to their destination via the house, (laughs) fine. But just roaming, like an episode of Come Dine With Me where they're just looking through the bedside tables. Yeah. But also, the twins were described as quite rude and quite
2: feral as well. They were just just roaming through the goat pen. They were (laughs) roaming as well. Um, In the early 80s, um, their father unfortunately died. Probably wasn't helped by the fact he was an alcoholic, and um, it's around the time the twins were starting secondary school, so that was probably quite a difficult time for them. But again, there's not much about their school age. There's evidence of some absence from school, and then um, David can described it as they were going through a punky, a punky style phase, which he said that they had spiky
1: hair. Yeah, which i mean it depends how spiky really depends how high grab emo i think after i think after three inches it becomes punk yeah well there was no precise measure of the hair length and so they were prob- They probably like duran duran oh they're not punk with basically no evidence for that it's <laughs> just like that's what he I'm knows not... <laughs> there's what what music are the kids listening to yeah. these days it was probably that damn duran duran <laughs> i'm not convinced he knows what a punk is Ursula dropped out
2: of school before she graduated and then Sabina did finish and then David Can looked at some reports online so he said that people claimed to have known them and they said things um like that they were rude at, at school they were quite aggressive um so they'd like push past you around the school corridors um and if mm. you bumped into them on a night out you you try and avoid them you pretend you don't know them basically um I mean I I can see that I, I always wanted a twin, and I can see why you not had the greatest upbringing. You probably got you've always got your twin there for company. You don't really need as much of a social theme. Someone who you might just yeah. like not make as much effort with other people. But you've always got that backup. So reports have also stated that Ursula was more normal in air quotes than Sabina, but she had a lot of control over her which conflicts quite a lot with later psychiatric assessments, would suggest that Sabina had control over Ursula. But they, the people... They
1: probably just got them mixed up, to be yeah. fair. They looked very similar. Yeah, true. Twin-like.
2: Again, not much is known about their 20s, but it is confirmed that they both moved away from Sweden with Ursula living in America and working as a waitress, which, talking of friends... Ursula, bit ditzy, working as a waitress. Phoebe's blonde. sister.
1: Hello. Oh my gosh, I think we just unearthed like a massive conspiracy. <laughs> yeah,
2: that was not one of the conspiracy theories I read. Um, and then Sabina moved to Cork in Ireland with, and she she got a boyfriend and she had two children. And she had her first child aged twenty-two, um, who she called Simon. So he, she was quite a young mother, and and she lived on what some reports say a travellers' camp. So, in it's sort of a caravan and living okay. in a traveller community. Ursula then travelled to Cork to visit Sabina in 2008, um, and then during the night, the two ran off into the night, didn't tell anyone they where they're going, disappeared, and they left and they travelled to Liverpool by ferry. Once they arrived. They went straight to a police station and there they told police that they were scared for Sabina's children's safety due to their father, who they'd left the children with, being unsafe to leave the children with.
1: So they were like, I've left my children with an unfit person, can you fix it now? (laughs) Yeah,
2: but there's no um, explanation of why they went to the UK, why
1: they didn't report it in Ireland. And they just suddenly got up and, like, left, like, in the night, like, gone.
2: Literally. Unless they were, like, planning to escape and run away together. And, you know, maybe Sabina was sick of being a mother.
1: So that seems like it would be something to do with Ursula. The fact that she's the one that's come over to visit and then they've gone. Like, she's the catalyst of that, possibly.
2: It's really, really strange.
1: This is why people need to keep diaries again. Yeah. Yeah. Like... Yeah, just explain, show you work, and Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Explain all your actions every day, no matter how mundane, because someday we're going to want to know what it is.
2: The police, obviously their response was to phone this guy, or phone the police in Cork and then get someone to drop around the house. And um, Sabina's boyfriend basically had no idea what they were on about. He didn't know they'd even gone. Oh. Um, and then and he, he was like, what? They're in England. <laughs> like really confused. And, you know, they all I think they said that everything was fine. I don't know if they didn't remove any children or anything. So they just went and checked on the kids and left. So they, the, the Liverpool police closed the case, said the, the Cork police are going to chase this up with you.
1: Stay in touch. Keep your phone on you. End of. And they yeah. were sort of like,
2: not our problem anymore. Like
1: if your girlfriend wants to run away to Liverpool, she can. Yeah, fine.
2: The twins then got on a coach and they headed down the M6 towards London but then the coach stopped at Keel Services and they got off. So this wasn't supposed to be a scheduled stop for the bus. Um, no, They didn't change drivers there. They didn't have any reason to stop at Keel Services. It wasn't like a rest stop. They had
1: not long left. Were they getting kicked off then?
2: So yeah, well that's what um, the BBC documentary said that they had the girls had the twins had said, We're not going to stow our bags in the un- under underneath, yeah, where you usually put your bags. And the driver had got suspicious and said, Well, let me look in them then, because why are you not letting yes. me store your bags? And they'd refused, so he'd basically stopped and said, Get out of the bus then. So that would explain it. Uh, David can believed that maybe they'd got on the wrong coach and made a fuss about the fact that they were on the wrong coach and made them stop, but I don't see why the BBC documentary would be wrong. So I'm going to (laughs) go with the
1: bag. I like that. Just blind faith in the British Broadcasting Corporation. (laughs) Like, they would never lie to me. How dare they? (laughs) They do not lie about anything. Never. (laughs) Unless it's Jimmy Savile.
2: Yeah. So from the services,
1: the two, they hung around there for about two and a half hours. Nice. Um, Do you remember that time when we were at Milton Keynes' coach stop waiting to get our coach because we were going to america were we there for ages but like nearly lost missed the. we bus. were there waiting for the bus to for the time that the bus would leave and then when we got on they were like we've been waiting for you what's happening and Ooh. the bus driver was really annoyed yes. that we hadn't got on the bus sooner i was like it's not supposed to leave till half past why should we have been on it any earlier than then wasn't it the start of our american adventure as yeah. well we're like fuck you we're going on holiday apparently that's coach etiquette that you have to be on it half an hour before it leaves Ooh. no Bullshit. I can easily see how they got kicked off to be fair. (laughs) We almost didn't make it on.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so they hung around there and then they eventually they seemed to get bored. I don't know if they were expecting a coach to come along or something, they were gonna get on it. But they got bored and then they started walking along the M six. Now I know that in some countries it is okay to walk along the motorway, but the UK is not one of them. I always feel awkward nope. when I see a bike on an A-road, to be honest. <laughs> I think that's bad enough. But they were, like, full-on walking along, and they, they walked along not just the edge, they walked into the middle, so they walked along the Central Reservation.
1: Oh. Yeah. That's, like, the only time people do that is if you've actually lost the plot. That's definitely a sign that you don't give a shit about life anymore. Yeah.
2: Like, in an IT, walking along the motorway yes. That's, like, the ultimate...
1: The cry for help
2: is the central reservation.
1: Yeah. So then when they
2: tried to cross the road, they didn't do that well because Sabina was hit by a car causing minor injuries. Uh, People who'd been driving reported this and this is where the police became aware of these two on the motorway. And the call came in and then they dispatched a team of sort of highway patrol and then the motorway cops, as they call them, were were sent out as well. And with obviously the cam- camera crew the camera crew went, Well we'll come along with it. So it's two two young twins. Sounds like a story. Yeah. So yeah. the twins later after this have explained why they're on the motorway running. They said that they were being chased by rapists slash maniacs that had come at them at the service station and they were trying to get away from them which would explain why they were maybe running, but you wouldn't, you'd report it at the service station. Surely that's much safer than walking along somewhere terrifying and fast.
1: You wouldn't go down the middle. Yeah. I don't know if they were seeing
2: things that weren't there or they were experiencing hallucinations or delusions, but it is, it's really, really strange. So then the motorway cops arrive and they begin to question the two. And the highway patrol are there and they're filling them in. And you can see this all on camera. And I do, you know, if you're at a computer, pause this. Type in Ericsson Twins motorway cops and you can watch the whole video. But I'll, I'll explain to you what's going on if you're haven't, if you in a car or something. So they're standing there and they're filling them in and saying, oh, they seem to be okay now. They said that they were scared and they were running. Um, They were walking along the motorway. And then sort of at the edge of the screen, you just say there's one man talking to, um, who was it, Ursula, and then she starts to run towards the road, and he goes, no, 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 and grabs her coat, and then she takes the coat off, so he's left holding the coat, and just runs full into a lorry, and I think it was going 56 miles an hour, literally straight in front of it, and then Sabina runs out into the road, after her, and she's hit by a car. Now that poor lorry
1: driver. Yeah. Imagine the thing when watching it is just that you can see that it's not just like she's trying to. She's not trying to get away from the police officer. She's deter. I get the impression she's determined to run into traffic.
2: Yeah, because she's standing there totally calm. One minute she's standing minute. there talking to
1: him, and then just suddenly darts. And it's not if you were running away, you'd run. She's. I think it looks. She like wasn't you're cleaning, trying to get she wasn't hit. Shouting before like they wanted to. to commit suicide is the yeah. impression that it gives because it just is so forceful that she's she's going for the to be hit she's not trying to look or dodge mm. just gone so obviously
2: the reaction of the police there they're like holy shit and as watching it is really shocking because yeah. it's not something that you see and i'm, and I'm sure that the people filming it thought jackpot a little bit because it's not sort of your yeah, everyday occurrence but um, so so unexpected. So Ursula is she's literally been run over by this lorry. So she is unable to get up. She's lying on the ground. Her legs are crushed, but she is conscious. Sabina is unconscious on the road, having been hit by the car. And you you do you sort of see her get thrown across. Yeah, you know, meters. They
1: were so lucky that they didn't get properly crushed. Like they, so lucky. They sort of managed to get away. Quite likely to say they ran into oncoming traffic. It's yeah. probably because they might have been driving slightly slower, trying to rub a neck at what the, the motorway cars were, yeah. were doing anyway. So then please stop traffic and they call for medical aid. And
2: Ursula, still conscious, she won't let them anywhere near her. She's screaming, she's scratching, she's spitting at them. Um now she's not on camera. The cameras start to focus on Sabina because she starts coming around. But while She's there. It's reported that she was accusing the police of not being real. Um, She's saying, you know, I know know you're not real. So that suggests there's some sort of delusion or hallucination. Then Sabina wakes up and she shouts, they're going to steal your organs. (gasps) Then she gets up shouting for the police. She says, I need police, I need police. And they're there saying, I am the police. And this woman is, she's just been standing over Sabina and she's been saying don't worry don't worry stay calm you've been in an accident don't worry and then she starts getting up and the woman's like i need some help someone where and i think she's saying like where's glenn where's glenn um and then savina starts running towards the center of the road and into the other side of the traffic and they're like no 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 running
1: after her they think fuck not again Um, so she's already been hit by a car She's, yeah. And then got up and ran into traffic again. Yeah.
2: Now, I think the other side of the traffic is going slow now because it's been stopped on one side. People are, again, like you said, nosing at what's going on. Um, And then they stop the traffic on the other side. And then the police start trying to apprehend her and, try, and trying to stop her from obviously hurting herself or anyone else. She smacked... Oh, oh, before she ran, so she smacked the woman in the face as well. Like, square in the face. And... Um, then members of the public just start coming out of the car and helping and grabbing her um one guy is a retired policeman oh no nice. so they're like jackpot um and they grab her and they restrain her and she she's so strong so she tries to fight with the police it takes seven people to get her down and handcuffs and she's shouting fuck off the entire time fuck off get off me that's like
1: crazy strength. Seven people to take her down.
2: That's like... And the the policewoman said, I've never seen anyone have that much strength unless they're on drugs of some sort.
1: And she's just been injured as well. She shouldn't she's even been be able to stand up. all. It's, it's so shocking. So
2: um, they, a helicopter comes and they airlift Ursula to hospital because obviously she's the most injured. She can't walk. Um, and then they take sabina to hospital and she calms down she's looked over um, but she's not really harmed despite being hit so hard she made a massive dent in this car and she's released five hours later now she's not released straight out into the public she's then taken to a police station where she's charged with assault of an officer but they they filmed that for the motorway cops program and they put this in this the bbc documentary so i watched this part and she's so calm she's not asking about her sister she's having a joke she's sort of flirting a bit with the officers seems really chilled sort of saying oh you know think bad things happen in threes probably something else is gonna happen now they're sort of rationalizing it sort like of- she hadn't even been that like like she was evicted, like something had happened to her. Yeah. like, like Not explaining what she'd done in any way. She didn't look, she didn't seem bothered about being charged with assaulting a police officer. She did seem a bit bothered about how her hair looked and what clothes they were going to give her. But other than that, she's sort of not really bothered about anything. They did uh, drug and drink tests on both of them. No drugs, no drink. No drugs, either, either of them. Abso- absolutely mm-hmm. none. Nice. Um, so... They contacted Sabina's boyfriend and told him what had happened. He's just confused because he's like, I thought they were in Liverpool. Now they've suddenly been in some car accident. So he can, but it's not like he said, oh yeah, well, they've been in this cult. Or, oh yeah, well, they've been planning a suicide. Like there's no, he doesn't give them any information. We don't know any
1: history of any other sort of manic episodes or anything like that. Nothing.
2: So Sabina was given a day in police custody. So she stays there overnight and then she's released the next day. And they let her go um, with a bag of her belongings. So she's got some cigarettes that she bought duty free uh, on the ferry over. And then she's got her clothes and she's wearing some of her sister's clothes. So she begins to try to find her sister in hospital, but she sort of wanders around a bit aimlessly. So she's not able to find a hospital. So she's seen by two blokes. So there's 54 year old Glenn Hollinshead and his friend Peter Malloy. Two average blokes, just been at the pub wandering home and she goes over to them so he's got a dog he's taken his dog to the pub with them and she says oh that's a cute dog and then goes over and pets it and then she starts to tell them that she's lost and she's looking for a sister who she thinks is in hospital and she's not really sure where she's gonna how she's gonna get there and do they know if there's anywhere she can stay tonight is there like a and b or something and they say i mean i don't know if this is a bit of a line they say oh there's no b&b around here
1: so would, She obviously needs help, wouldn't she? You'd yeah. you want to help out. I
2: think, I think Glenn thought she was either homeless or fleeing from domestic violence and wanted to help her. Yeah, so, even
1: her actual story of just that she's lost. She would have clearly have been... She would have spoken with an accent, I guess. Yeah. You could have told that she wasn't from around there. True, yeah. So
2: he says, come back to mine and... I'll give you some food and we'll help you find your sister. So at Glenn's house, so Peter goes back as well. They've they've bought some beer, they go all go back together. He Peter asks Sabina about her sister and he was talking on the documentary, so it's quite interesting to see what he says about her his experience. And he says, Oh, so you sit in hospital, what happened then? And she gets really cagey, she won't answer his questions, she doesn't want to talk about it. But she just keeps getting up and looking out of the curtains and looking sort of quite suspicious as if she's checking to see if someone's watching her. Mm. So they, again, think maybe it's domestic violence. Maybe she's fleeing from an abusive relationship. So that makes them want to be more supportive and more sort of accommodating and help her out. Because you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. I can imagine you think, Don't Luke worry. and I coming across someone. We'd probably just do everything that we could to help them. So she's got some cigarettes and she smoking them sort of chain smoking and then she offers them cigarettes and they say thank you yeah and then put them in their mouths, and she snatches them out and says no you can't have them they might be poisoned so again
1: oh, i don't know if there's some sort very of very erratic yeah considering that she's, she's just obviously not it. sure about what's real and what's not having yeah. real trouble di- distinguishing between reality and fiction massively absolutely so she left the house for 10 minutes
2: and she made a call. Um, which isn't actually, this is in um, the book by David Canberra. It's not in the documentary and it's not in um, the articles. Um, But she reportedly phoned um, the police constable, Paul, and asked about her sister, which again, it seems more rational than it seems, seems fair enough. He said he offered to collect her and take her to see Ursula, and maybe take the people that she's with as well if she wanted. And she says, No, no, I'm too tired. Which I think is quite surprising, considering she was trying to find Ursula, she was worried about her.
1: Or she is that she's starting to lose trust in who she's on the phone to. You know, if she's yeah. this paranoid and this suspicious about people, she might have thought maybe it wasn't him. Maybe True. it wasn't a police
2: yeah. officer. So then Peter left the house about eleven thirty to go home and Sabina stays at Glen's. Um and then The next day, Glenn phones his brother um, because he says to Sabina, look, I'll try and help you find out about Ursula. My brother works at the hospital. So I can say, when are you going for your shift today? Could you just make a point of finding out what's going on and how she is? So he agrees to find out what he can for them. Then Glenn's neighbour around lunchtime is outside and he's washing his minibus. Um, And Glenn comes out and he asks for tea bags. And uh, the neighbour says... I'll get some after I've done with the minibus, obviously. Don't want a half clean minibus. Um, So Glenn goes into the house and then literally one minute later, he comes out clutching himself and says, she stabbed me. And he is bleeding really, really seriously. And he says, I'm dying. And then the neighbour in the interview... Um, it's the way he responds, I'm sorry to laugh because this is tragic and horrific. But he just says, oh, I said to him, oh, no, you're not. Oh, no, it, it can't be. I saw sure you, like, just his
1: response I he thought really... he was just taking the piss because he didn't have any tea bags? He's like, I'm dying for
2: a cup of tea. But it's like, is so blasé about it. But even after he knows the outcome of this... Like, oh, you'll be right. Change, change your story. Um... So then he falls to the floor um and uh, this is heartbreaking. He says to his neighbor, "Will you look after my dog?" and Aww. then he dies, and he was stabbed five oh, times. How um, horrific, and I had no idea because I knew about this made to a cops footage. I just thought well, that's weird. I'll never find out about that. No idea that she went on to murder someone. to murder someone literally the next day.
1: But that's just more evidence that she doesn't know what is real and what isn't because this is the guy that's taken her in and helped her and she obviously thinks that he's out to get her. It must be feeling threatened. She's not trying to steal money. He's not trying to do anything else. It's just seems like it's pure.
2: Yeah. Like paranoia. Totally. So she, Sabina runs from the house and she's got a lump hammer on her and he was a welder. So it's, Likely that it was a tool from his house um, that he would have hanging around. But I thought, okay, fair enough, protection. She's
1: she's scared. She starts smashing herself in the head with it. Fuck. So, I mean, this is extreme. That's why. So, yeah, maybe she was, like, say, on the motorway, they were actually trying to kill themselves. Maybe she thinks it's like Inception, where you have, like, some sort of weird dream thing where you have to die to get out of it. Yeah, but both... Smashing herself in the I've not head. Seen Inception. Well, Inception, if you die in the dream, you die in real life, I think. No, that's not true. I'm confused. I'm still confused and I'm trying to explain. <laughs> this is why I haven't watched Inception. Cause... But that's like but that's her thing, isn't it? Like you go into a dream, how do you wake yourself up from it? I don't know. But for both of them to For her to be smashing her own head in with a hammer, something's going on in there that she wants to stop.
2: Oh yeah. But what? literally what somebody tell me answers on a postcard because I need to know <laughs> I need to know so this this guy's driving past he sees her whacking at herself in the head with a hammer he gets out he tries to apprehend her he tries to get the hammer off her she's got a roof tile in her pocket so she grabs that out where the
1: fuck did you get that from but
2: she smacks him in the head with that and she runs off but then he sees paramedics running after her because Glenn's neighbour by now has obviously called the police and they're on the lookout for her, and paramedics start running after her. So she runs onto a bridge over the A fifty, which is quite a busy road. And she jumps off, and she falls forty feet, breaks both ankles, and fractures her skull. She's
1: a fucking cyborg, but it's like, I mean, no, she's fractured <laughs> some bones now. But how has she been hit by a lorry? and jumped off a fucking motorway bridge and she's still alive it
2: is like an action movie where you're like oh yeah as if they wouldn't it wouldn't be dead by now but like she's literally yeah a lorry tough a lorry bird.
1: but um i'm living the name checks of all these british roads as well
2: <laughs> shout out to the m46 <laughs> <laughs> but um but even like, do you know, like if you're on a bridge, like to, to be able to throw yourself out, to not have that thing in your head that makes you go, yeah, I'm probably not going to do this. You'd ha- you have to really sort of turn off that kind of ability to,
1: to protect yourself. Yeah, some synapses aren't firing in the right way.
2: Yeah. So she is taken to hospital. Ursula spends three months in hospital and she then moves back to Sweden and Sabina is obviously tried with um, murder. Now she pleads guilty to manslaughter with diminished responsibility. And during questioning, um, she responded no comment to everything. Uh, Her defence counsel argued, uh, let me show you. Yeah, fully adieu. Yeah. So shared psychosis, um, which is not part of the DSM, and only has a handful of cases. This one being the top one, which makes yeah. me suspicious. Isn't Ian and Myra another one? Um, were they psychotic, though? I mean, they knew what they
1: were doing, didn't it's like they? That the, you can convince someone else to do it. Yeah, shared, I suppose it's not really shared psychosis, is it? No. Whereas
2: this is... the the argument is that they They both were able to believe that same sort of delusion that was the same the only other case that they had that i found an interesting one it was one being a husband and wife who believed someone was coming into their house spreading dust and wearing down their shoes which i can fucking believe my house i don't know where all the dust in my house is coming from (laughs) and someone spreading dust around i feel like i'm constantly replacing the soles of my shoes so i'm i'm sharing this psychosis this is a i've A folie à trois. Why, who else is involved? Me. Yeah, but... Troie's three. Yeah, these husband and wife.
1: Oh, they've (laughs) roped you in. you read about it and you're there. I'm down for their theory. Okay, I want to join in. Folly a cat. (laughs) (laughs) Done. So her plea
2: was accepted by Nottingham Crown Court and she was given five years in prison for murdering
1: a human
2: for manslaughter so she served that time in surrey and she became a christian in prison and a lot of people have said that is not enough i was looking into this in fact i was talking to a student earlier about psychology obviously <laughs> but also
1: well done <laughs>
2: <laughs> we we're talking about um ghosts and uh he was saying about how it's interesting sort of thinking about ghosts because it's the unexplainable and I said I don't I don't find ghosts that interesting because my answer to ghosts is someone saying oh I think I saw a ghost my answer is no you didn't or prove it they can't prove it and it's no you didn't but whereas this something's going on the evidence is there I, I just want to know what what's going on like it's it's not like some thing that I can't it's something that I can't explain but that I know is real yeah but I feel like unless it's sort of evidence-based I'm not really interested these days sort of to my own detriment I'm not interested in sort of the supernatural and
1: the other side as much as maybe I could be like to your own detriment as if like because I don't believe in ghosts I'm so much worse off I just feel like it makes me not less interesting
2: yeah It makes me not an open person. But then there are those people who go around saying they're spiritual. And it's like, no, you bought some baggy trousers and a floral crown for Primark. Like, that's not spiritual. Hashtag deep. (laughs) (laughs) So these are some theories anyway. You can tell me what you think about why these two did what they did. So one theory is temporary insanity that was transferred from one sister to the other through their twin bond. Okay. Okay what are you thinking about that one um Cruises? I think
1: temporary insanity great transferred via the twin bond I don't know I guess that could be a thing I don't know if it's I don't think there's any evidence for the twin bond I'm sure I've seen stuff that proves that there is almost zero evidence that, like there there's yeah, no twin bond but I you guess, just spent a lot of time I think together. just in the same way as if like it's really hard to call someone they're crazy like if you were wanted to run down the street and you're like someone's after me I'd probably run along with you <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> just be like, like I don't believe it too but I'll would join in just run it in, run into a motorway though I don't know like maybe one of them believed the other one like believed what she was saying was true you know she said like I'm in trouble um yeah, the police yeah, are after yeah. me like there's a conspiracy like and they told you all this stuff and you knew them yeah. and trusted them maybe you would we have seen like in the one con men yeah, like in it. that Hendy Fregard, he yeah. had multiple people living really shitty lives because he convinced them they were being watched. Like um, gang stalking. Like that's um, a really interesting, like, it really blurs the line between like what's a psychological problem and what's real, where people believe that they're being gang stalked and like they can see the sa- evidence of it everywhere. Oh, that car drove past me twice or that person looked at me on, that at me on the tube. Like yeah. you can see evidence of it if True. you're open to it i don't
2: know yeah so possibility so (laughs) the the second one they were possessed by an evil spirit who worked through them and then by becoming christians they were saved from the evil spirit and therefore that's why it stopped
1: not possible nope
2: um someone else killed glenn so apparently the wounds showed there were two attackers suggested by some people and that is evidence that sabina was part of a cult which is why their bags couldn't be searched and they thought the police
1: were fake mm. but like but if they were, part- they were running from something i don't know because you could be part of a cult and they could still brainwash you to believe that kind of bullshit too yeah
2: but then you'd think that people would say oh yeah they were part of this cult or they went to these meetings or they were talking to these people yeah yeah um, they were in an experiment done on twins, which impacted on their mind, mind, unused mind control. Possibly, like uh, the Unibomber. Yeah, we go with that one. Yeah, ding it, ding, it, we
1: Yeah, Unibomber theory. <laughs> the government fucked them up. It wasn't his fault. It was well, it was his fault, but he wasn't to blame. Okay. <laughs> he just wants to destroy everything. He murdered innocent people. Um, I'm now going to be talking to you in today's lecture about George Joseph Smith. His name might be familiar to some of you and not to others. And to some of you, it will just sound like every other person that we've done on this podcast because he's British and we have 20 acceptable names in rotation.
2: He's got a similar name to the guy who founded Mormonism, is that right? That was Joseph Joseph Smith. Smith. Yeah.
1: Yes, that's true.
2: Maybe that's why it sounds familiar.
1: So this George Smith, he was born in London's East End in January of 1872. And as a boy, he had clearly very challenging behavior. Um, it's not quite clear why it happened, but he was sent to Gravesend Reformatory for eight years um, from the time that he was nine years old. So almost for the entirety of his education, he was in a reform school for badens.
2: Oh, is that what they called it? Reform school?
1: Yeah so no doubt growing up in a place like that would have had a huge influence on his life and he would almost certainly have picked up some tips and tricks if not at the very least developing a disdain for authority and yeah. the law and not really liking people in charge opposite of authoritarian personality so when he was allowed out he did return to go and live with his mother initially and she did take him in but their relationship was massively strained and his first wife reported that he'd basically broken his mother's heart and that she was just devastated. So George Smith was not really in any way concerned with the feelings of women in his life. He knew that he was an attractive man and he understood that he had power over women and that he could control them either with the suggestion or the offer of marriage.
2: Oh, I thought you were going to say sex then. There's
1: <laughs> another time. No, well, see, that's the difference. Like, although he would sleep with them, it was definitely he used marriage as the tool. Because in the early 20th century, suffrage was still in its early stages. And women would need to be married in order to secure their standing, to get emancipation from their parents. There was so much that they couldn't do for themselves without yeah. being owned by a man. So he knew that if he picked the right women, uh, women who were just just sort of on the cusp of like being old enough to be on the shelf, but young enough to it be be believable that he could want to marry me, and they would just jump at it. Yeah. Um. So up from the time, so from the time he left the reformatory at eighteen to the time that he first married at the age of twenty six. George Smith was constantly in pursuit of an easy lifestyle by criminal means. He had many spells in jail for theft. And then he realized that he could sort of combine his powers together to. <laughs> this sounds like kids' TV. Combine their powers together yeah. when their rings unite. Like a creepy mustachio transformer. <laughs> um, basically, he could persuade women to do the thieving for him and then. He really doesn't have to do anything, particularly by getting women to rob their employers, women in service, things like that. So I'm sure he tried that a few times, um, but it was in 1896 that he was jailed for a year over a particular scheme where he was charged with larceny and the receiving of stolen goods. And then when he was released from that, he went to live in Leicester, where in 1898 he married his first wife and his only fully legal wife, Caroline Thornhill. She was the daughter of a bootmaker and he thoroughly disapproved of his 18-year-old marrying this man who was going by the name now of George Love. Oh, that's a... Uh, you have to, have like, a little message. give a little wink when you say that. So, Caroline would go subliminal. <laughs> is like, the most overt. <laughs> <Yeah. listen. laughs> I'm George. Let me stick my penis in you. So... Caroline would go on in later life to say that she'd never known him do a day's work. And it was clear from the other women that he went on to seduce that his appeal was sort of, they, it was been described as like hypnotic. And one theory was put about in the press at the time of his trial um, some 20 years later it was literally that, that he had hypnot, like he had the power of hypnotism to get women to do what he wanted. I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it's more a case of the systems of the time. The oppression of women meant that he was... That being married was better than not. Like there are wanna... some
2: people, though, that have just got away about them, haven't you, That you just want to yes. watch. I
1: think he was charismatic. They said that he yeah. had dark little eyes that looked into you. And you do have people that you just don't know why, but you'd do anything for them. So... Soon after he and Caroline were married, the now Mr. and Mrs. Love moved to London, where he basically began pimping her out, but as a maid. So he would just constantly get, he'd be writing references for her, getting her jobs at places, and then instruct her to steal from the families who employed her. This scheme came to an end after about a year of this, when Caroline was caught trying to pawn some silver spoons that she'd stolen in Hastings. And she was sent to prison for one year, which was seemed to be what she needed to break the spell of her husband that he had over her. And when she came out of prison, she sort of fingered—is that a term that people use? Like identified George Smith for his <laughs> she fingered part. George. She Smith. fingered him in the metaphorical asshole, um, but she identified him for his part in these crimes which caused him, which was I think was quite um, progressive yeah, at the it. time, but it. he was jailed for two years for the receipt of the stolen goods. <laughs> so they obviously recognized that he was the mastermind behind this. And Caroline was then allowed, able to escape by emigrating to Canada. Oh, bloody hell. She,
2: she wants to get away. She bloody gets Massively. away.
1: George Smith reportedly went to Leicester on his release to find his Mrs. Love, but her family um, apparently chased him out of town so his and wouldn't say where she was his pride was only dented slightly and his heart couldn't have been broken because whilst um, Caroline had been in prison initially for those 12 months he had married a woman who was the keeper of a boarding house in London now in the original trial notes her name's withdrawn uh, but it's thought that she they didn't really have much of a marital relationship that he just married her and then would just show up at intervals demanding money from her. So this was his first bigamous marriage. Um, and bigamy, obviously, where you marry more than one person at yeah. once, it's still against the law yeah. and is punishable for a maximum of seven years for that. I mean, obviously, there is polygamy, which is... Um, permissible in yeah. some places, um, which is where you have one wife and then you have lots of girlfriends. Yeah, I but guess, you're not all legally to them all. But you don't legally marry all of them.
2: Which I, mean, I you think you could just have a party if you wanted, like, say this yeah. is marriage number two. Like, we'll
1: all live together. If you keep it on the down low, who's going to give a shit? I think it's probably... As I think it's sort of fine to keep that as a law because I think it protects people from being scammed in the same yeah. way. If you can, because if you can legally marry, I guess you could marry someone and then break that promise and go and marry someone or else. Or go around them.
2: divorcing. Like I could be married to Luke, but then go marry a rich guy and divorce him and get his money, and or just
1: not even divorce him, just have like a double life. Yeah, yeah, um, but fine. Like if you're all in the know, it's cool. So this was certainly not a setback in the life of George Smith that he'd lost his life and gone to jail because he discovered his winning formula for being able to live a comfortable life without doing a, any work whatsoever. So in 1908 is the next recorded account of his movements as like a professional leech. So he met a widow named Florence Wilson, in the June of 1908, who he married after only three weeks of dating. And on the 3rd of July, the couple went on a date to see the Franco-British exhibition at White City. So while they were there, he just left her for a moment saying that he was going to go and buy a paper, but never came back. So while his unsuspecting wife was waiting for him to return from the shop, he, gone home, removed all her belongings from their house and sold them and just fucked off. Oh, Horrendous. The worst type of ghosting. Like, oh, I'll be back in a second. All your belongings are gone. Like, totally fucked her over.
2: Do they leave you hung in?
1: And that's they such a quick turnaround. Everybody. Like if they met in June, dated for three weeks, he left on the 3rd of July. Literally, he did this. They got married. He did it straight away. He didn't even try and like lure her in with a couple of weeks yeah. of happily married life. So as soon as that paper was signed, right, you're gone. So the 30th of July, same year. Um, so only three weeks after he's done this, he met a woman called Edith Pegler in Bristol. And he married her using his real name, Um, George Smith again, after she'd responded to an advert in a newspaper that he was looking for a housekeeper. Now, Edith is a slightly different figure in his life. He didn't use her in quite the same way as his other wives. He told her that he was an antiques dealer and that he'd have to go away on business for long periods of time. And she just became used to the fact that her husband would be gone for weeks or months. He would tell her that he'd gone abroad and basically if she ran out of money because he hadn't come back for a long time she'd just go and stay with her mum and wait for him to come back so they have this- just
2: accept the nature that you get like i always think when luke's home from work he could have he could be having a full-on other relationship if he left work early every day when hour spent an hour or two with someone else he could be coming home yeah well, if he's
1: gone for a couple of months because she thinks he's in Paris, he's fucking married someone. someone. Yeah, he's married Been someone, off. dumped them, sold their belongings and then come back to her. Yeah, But for some reason, Edith, he continued to come back to in between all the other women. He never sold her stuff. He never ditched her, but he would keep coming back oh. for some strange reason. But yet, yeah, she didn't, apparently she didn't know what he was doing. Um, I don't know. Maybe she was just like the best cook. I'm like, fuck, I need to go back for a Sunday dinner. Or he cared about her genuinely. Yeah. But either way, he kept her on the string while he used other women. So in 1909, George Smith married a Miss Sarah Freeman, using this time the still romantic name, George Rose. And he explained his wealth but lack of employment by saying that he had a benevolent rich aunt. I've never said the word aunt before in my life. Aunt. 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 Auntie. So once they'd settled in London together, he told her that he needed some ready cash to be able to set up his antiques business. So Sarah went ahead and withdrew all of her savings from the post office, as well as selling some government stocks that she had, handed everything over to her husband. So on the 5th of November that year, so they'd been married for less than a month, he took her out for a day at the National Gallery. And whilst they were there, he excused himself to go to the toilet and just did another runner.
2: Why does he have to be married to them to do this? Is that because they have to live together?
1: It's because then he can have all their money. Okay. Because then he's in charge of their accounts, right. pretty much. So then he and so they can live together too, because they wouldn't have done it. Yeah. The rich, fancier people wouldn't have so he left his wife waiting again she just thought he was going to the toilet she sat there waiting forever and there's no mobile phones so you can't text them like where the yeah. fuck are you like you'd have to wait for a really long time before you gave up
2: yeah knock on the door like and like go to the shit. police
1: office like where can they be i've lost them like you just end up staying in the same place hoping they yeah. come back to you um so he yet again emptied their flat of everything to sell it off and it's thought that he would have made a total of around 400 pounds from miss freeman which at the time would have been um, about an average working man's wage for about four years. Bloody hell. So, yeah, exactly. Bloody hell. You'd be like, right, you've got four years worth of income now. You can chill for a little bit. And it would satiate a lot of people's appetites. But George Smith had this idea that he was going to be a fantastic businessman and an entrepreneur and he bought a second-hand furniture shop in Southend for him and Edith to live above and run which seems quite sensible if you're going to be stealing a lot of women's furniture and you've got somewhere to get rid sell it they also he also bought eight houses in Bristol back there but I think unsurprisingly his reformatory education hadn't really prepared him for this life of legitimate business and so he ended up failing a lot of things he sold all his properties at a loss because he just really couldn't be asked to deal with them and so by 1910 he needed some more money again so august 1910 so he's only had this for about i don't know eight months and already it's gone bessie monday um so her full name is beatrice but she was known as bessie bessie monday was living in clifton And her father had died some years before, and she'd been left with a small fortune, but it was in a family trust that her uncle looked after. Did he marry the uncle? That would have been good, wouldn't it? Add some diversity to this thing. But she was age 31, so she was the perfect target for George Smith. It's very like the Garfunkel and Oates song about 29, 31. There's nobody left. Exactly. Exactly. You just tip over into that edge and she's like, oh my God. And especially in this time, that would have been very you're much You're running out of time. It's probably not going to happen for you. So when she met George Smith, he was calling himself Henry Williams and he was posing as a picture restorer. And within a week or so they'd eloped together to Weymouth. So literally a matter of days. And they married there in a registry office. That night, Bessie wrote a letter to her uncle from the boarding house they were staying in. Um, she just basically sent a note home saying, FYI, I got married. look so at bitches. Yeah. My husband's going to write a letter of his own to you. Like, look out for it. So he did write a letter to the uncle also. And it was also quite a short note. And it asked her uncle to, quote, forward as much money as possible at your earliest. Straight away. Right yeah. to me hi i'm henry i married bessie give me as much money as you can quick <laughs> it's pretty much it and um, obviously they didn't really want to so in december smith received 135 pounds which was the interest from the fund um and knowing, i think you knowing that that was about all he was gonna get it's still quite a big sum of That's money still quite a bit he fucked off so knowing that Bessie had, was wealthy. Her family was quite protective of her because they hadn't just given everything over. He wanted to make sure that she wasn't going to do anything and he thought the best way to do it was to humiliate her into keeping quiet. So he left a letter for Bessie explaining that he was leaving because he'd caught a disease from her, um, which he said was, quote, which is called the bad disorder. And quote, and... Therefore, it proved that she'd been sleeping around before they got married. What he then said that he was going to leave.
2: Maybe he could have just said syphilis.
1: Yeah, right. He couldn't even. Like, he didn't even know the name the of one bad disorder. Yeah. So he said that for his health and honor, um, the cure is going to take years, and he was going to have to leave. And so then it gets better. So, in mean, to make sure that her relatives who probably weren't as gullible as Bessie would say that's bullshit if you're saying you didn't have sex before marriage you've not given him a disease whatever and came looking for him especially knowing that he had the 35 pounds he told her to try and put them off to say that she lost the 135 pounds because she'd had it all in her handbag and then she went to the beach and (gasps) fell asleep and it got stolen
2: my colleague went swimming, went to Magaluf this weekend. She looked like shit today. <laughs> um, she went on swimming in the beach. and uh, She got shit stolen. Her bag got stolen.
1: Oh my god, actually this. Yeah, actually this. I mean, to be fair, she went swimming, so she literally just left her bag to the masses. Yeah. She didn't fall asleep. Mm-hmm. Night, Although like... I have fallen asleep on many a beach. I can't fall asleep anywhere.
2: You can't fall asleep on
1: a beach. I can't even fall asleep on a sofa.
2: <laughs> shit.
1: Yeah,
2: it's hard That's my times.
1: number one snoozing spot. Hmm. It's thought that Smith then returned to Edith in Bristol and then together they used their mon- the money they'd got from Bessie to buy another house in Southend. I think he probably tried funding their lifestyle with more bigamous mass marriages for the next couple of years, but the next major event happened in Western Supermare in 1912 when Smith was spending a day by the sea and bumped into his ex-wife, Bessie Mundy. So so she told her family this story about the, the money
2: stolen. She went along with this.
1: Yeah, she said, he's had to leave me. My money's been stolen. Everything's really sad. And he's been able to ghost all these women before. And now, fuck i bumped into one again. What's he going to do? So he's sort of just trapped into this awkward situation. So he just pretended, oh my God, I've been looking for you for <laughs> ages. Like last thing she knew, he left her at a gallery. Oh, and so wow. he basically said that he was really sorry. He'd been trying to, he's got, he was cured. And then he'd been searching for her. He knew her family were in Weymouth. That's the whole reason he's here. He wanted to recognize, Absolute. just thinking on the feet, crap here you are <laughs>
2: um it is sort of sitcomy isn't it yeah that moment where you see the the cogs turning
1: bessie took him back to her boarding house and told the good news to her landlady who was called mrs tuckett and mrs tuckett seems a bit more switched on and she was unimpressed that this long lost mr williams had just turned up and he then and so she said look it's my duty I'm gonna have to send for Bessie's auntie straight away to come and speak to you both like this isn't right so then the pair were like okay we're just going out for dinner and then they didn't come back they didn't even get Bessie's belongings they just said we'll see you later and then disappeared completely They then spent a lot of time moving about while Smith looked for some legal advice on how to gain control of Bessie's full trust fund. So he was eventually told by a solicitor that basically the only way to guarantee that he'd get possession of this trust fund would be if they both made wills, leaving everything to each other, and she died. That's bad advice. So there you go, decision made. He knew now, he couldn't keep bumping, he couldn't keep doing this and then risk bumping into them again and if he really wants to get hold of everything they've got, they're going to have to die. So, 8th of July, the wills were made. 9th of July, Smith purchased a bathtub from an ironmonger. 10th of July, he took his wife to the doctor's for a checkup after complain- after claiming that she'd suffered a fit. But oh, basically what he just told her
2: yeah oh my god you just had a fit yeah
1: pretty much that's she woke so up and he said up. oh my god didn't you realize what happened last night you had a... she didn't remember that anything had happened she said well, well I guess got... she might not she said oh i've got a bit of a headache and he was like no yeah you collapsed and like he convinced her that she had a fit that's terrifying so then uh smith summoned doctors to the house in the middle of the night to come and see bessie about the fits and he said, "Right, you'd best write to your uncle now and explain that you're having a breakdown, and that I'm, you're leaving everything to me because otherwise he won't believe me if something happens." So she did. She wrote a letter saying that I'm having, uh, I'm really ill, and by the way, my husband's going to get everything.
2: She needs a switched-on best friend.
1: Yep. Well, this is what happens when you isolate someone from their family, from their friends, from yeah. everyone. That's a classic cult move, isn't it? To just Mm -hmm. isolate people. So in the Sunday morning, she went to take a bath while her husband went out to buy some fish and the doctor was sent for once again, this time to say that Bessie had had a fit in the bath and drowned. So the doctor arrived to find her lying on her back in the bath and a bar of soap still clutched in her hand. But, so after this, Smith moved really swiftly. There was no inquest. They said, okay, it's death by misadventure. And he had the body buried in a common grave before any of Bessie Mundy's family could get to uh, Could get there. And he then got the bath and took it back to the shop where he got it from to get his money back. God, not that foolish. So her family did contest the will. Um, but... £2,500 was, was eventually given over to Smith um, because she had made that will like it was nothing he could do about it um, after which he once again returned to Edith and they moved living in various places around the Somerset area still so 1913 George Smith was off again This time he was in South Sea where he used his real name and we just didn't really care much now. And he married 25-year-old Alice Burnham. So the day before their wedding, Alice had her life insured for £500, withdrew all her savings and took £104 from Alice's father that he'd been saving for her marriage and gave it all to her husband on the 10th of December, so he did hang around with her for a bit longer, Alice and George went to Blackpool um, on a little holiday, in fucking December though, I'd yeah, be like, come it's on. that's no fun for anyone. Um, but they went up to Blackpool in December looking for somewhere to stay, they hadn't booked anywhere. How would you even book anywhere in advance? Write a letter? Would you write a letter to a hotel saying, can we come and stay tonight? Oh, I guess Or were they all so. just like drop-ins?
2: Me- yeah maybe you'd write they had a telephone
1: telephones 1912 yeah they had a telephone anyway so i just i bet not everyone would have had a telephone when i worked in the jewelers like um 2007 they always the policy was that if i was taking details of someone for a jewel repair they were like you have to ask them are you on the telephone before taking the number i was like I'm not going to ask someone, are they on the telephone? I'm going to ask them on for their the tel- number. Are you on the telephone? I was like, how? Not why? I why can't keep going with this practice from how long ago? Yeah, fucking. Are you it on out. the telephone? Yes! They're fucking wired up to the moon these days. It's fine. <laughs> so, anyway, um, they went into Blackpool and they were looking for somewhere to stay. So, they went to one hotel boarding house first and there was room there, but um, this isn't really going to suit us because. There's no bath. Oh fuck. So then they found a second lodging house that did meet the requirements.
2: Having a murder weapon within it.
1: Exactly. A doctor was called out to check on Alice. Um she'd had a headache and he was concerned that she might be going to have a fit.
2: I mean you can convince someone that they've had a headache. If someone says headache to me, I get a headache.
1: Yeah. Um, But obviously the doctor was like, well, you've just had a really long train journey from Portsmouth up to Blackpool. So you just need to chill out about it. Um, So two days later, the 12th of December, Alice went for a bath and the landlady was downstairs in the room below this. And she noticed the ceiling was becoming damp and the bath must have been overflowing. Just as she was about to go and do something about it, George Smith burst in holding two eggs and he said oh i just went out to get these eggs for breakfast
2: <laughs> and i thought i'd come and show you
1: yeah he then i mean what else are you gonna have with them why are you just buying the eggs yeah. then he went upstairs and began shouting for help because his wife wasn't waking up and wasn't responsive so once again a really quick inquest declared death by misadventure and Alice was buried in a common grave. Her belongings sold, and Smith was reunited with Edith and five hundred pounds richer.
2: So, what was this misadventure that they were? They were thinking they had a bath and they fell
1: asleep, or they had a bath died and she because had a fear. of the bath. Just yeah, she
2: drowned. It was like drown. an accidental death. Yeah.
1: So then, at the outbreak of World War One in nineteen fourteen, Smith told Edith he was going to London for a few days where he quickly wooed and married a servant girl... Of course. (laughs) ...called Alice Revel. And he told this girl that his name was Charles Oliver James. But this time decided to go down a slightly easier route of just um, stealing her savings and ditching her in a public place. He just left her in a park this time. Um... He stole many of her belongings and he took some of them back to Edith as gifts and said, Oh my God, i got all these women's dresses in the sale. I mean, she's
2: probably been saving her whole life.
1: Yeah, this was just a girl who worked in service. She wouldn't have had much. I think it's just if he thinks that he can get them. Yeah. So this slight break in routine doesn't mean that his murderous ways were over just yet. So December of that year, he married um, I mean, he must have got a lot of use out of his wedding suit. Yeah. He probably same knew speech. all the best vendors. Yeah. Same speed. Literally
2: just the names crossed out and written like a line of names
1: underneath. Yeah. Um, so he married in December that year, um, 1914, a Miss Margaret Lofty. She was a 38-year-old vicar's daughter and this time he called himself John Lloyd and said that he was an estate agent. So he repeated exactly the same pattern, took out life insurance, had a doctor come to visit, made her write letters to her family, got in the bath, he nipped out to the shop claiming he was going to buy something, rushes home at the exact moment that his wife has died accidentally in the bath, drowned. He would then bury her quickly and hot-foot it back to Edith. Just completely the same. So this time, the tragic story of a bride drowning in the bath made it into the newspaper, The News of the World. Alice Burnham's father and the landlady from Blackpool both read the article. Sure. And they noticed the glaring similarities between the death of Alice Burnham and Margaret Lofty and both of them contacted the police. So when George Smith went to his solicitor to collect the money from Margaret Lofty's life insurance on the 1st of February 1915, he was arrested as he left the building. He admitted that he was John Lloyd and George Smith, um, that he'd married Alice Burnham, and he was just initially charged with bigamy. He'd admitted that he was married to her. That carries a prison sentence. They can investigate all they want now that he is charged with the bigamy. They've got seven years to do it. Yeah. So the bodies of Bessie, Alice and Margaret were examined by Dr. Spilsbury, who I've mentioned in another case. He was an incredibly famous court pathologist. And I know that I've mentioned it before, but I can't remember which one it was. But the, one of the books that I read about this was called The Magnificent Spilsbury and the Case of the Brides in the Bath by Jane Robbins, which is a really interesting uh, read. Um, so this doctor Spilsbury, he examined the bodies, and George was initially charged with the willful murder of all three of them. Now, for, there's some weird thing in the law at this time where you could only be tried for the murder of, well, unless it's still now, you can only be tried for one murder at once at this point. Really? Here. Yeah. Um, and about it's willful murder. So I think mainly, I think it doesn't say. I'm just speculating, but I'm sure I think it must have been to save expenses. They only tried him. For the murder of Bessie Mundy, um, but they allowed the judge allowed the evidence of Margaret Lofty and Alice Burnham's murders to be included to establish a pattern um, for the crimes. That seems. But so I think once weird. they know that he killed that one, they'll just put him in prison forever. And then they don't need to so spend all that get us time reaching. Yeah, well, I think they're going to kill him. But they right. don't need to keep retrying yeah, yeah, and I wasting guess hang time. Yeah, there's no point. So it was all centered around this murder of Bessie Monday, and it started on the Tuesday, twenty second of June, nineteen fifteen. So the trial was really long. Um, there were well over a hundred witnesses, and George Smith regularly lost his temper. He shouted from the dark. He oh, call people up names, um, and then proving the cause of death was going to be essential as the usual signs of drowning by being forced under were not evident on the bodies. You would they would have expected that if you're drowning someone, you usually you'd usually like I do every day, but you'd force the head under the water, because that's the bit Yeah, the head
2: or shoulders. That'd be So bruises. there was no yeah,
1: no bruising, no you sign, fight, hand over you? mouth Think exactly. No there were no signs of this. So he obviously hadn't done it in that way. So they Got him drunk first. Well they deduced that he must have approached while his wives were lying in the bath, grabbed their ankles or had his arms sort of like underneath their knees and pulled them upwards so that they slid down mm. and their heads were and sort of held them up by the legs. And then obviously once they're in there, your arms are down by your side and one of those old tin baths, you wouldn't have been able to you wouldn't have been able to sit up. You wouldn't have been able to get out. Oh, You're sort of just trying to it doesn't even bear thinking about is it is well you're lucky you weren't there at the time then because to prove this theory they felt like they won't understand if we just tell them about it they a demonstration was carried out in the court and they had a nurse in her bathing costume to protect her modesty in a bath actually full of water like i don't know why they couldn't oh. have just shown the motion they had a woman <laughs> in a bath um,
2: although to make sure that you get the sort of slippy slidey
1: you want the slippy slidey and basically people at the time were saying that you would have been able to struggle and that you wouldn't have actually died from it you
2: could have put your arms up actually i think seeing it would really help well shall we do it
1: <laughs> i don't think we. they held this woman under the water until she actually passed out and had to be revived using oh, you
2: don't have to go that far
1: like, artificial we get respiration yeah just get her head wet it's fine no they dangled this nurse until oh, she Jesus. passed out um so then, on the twenty third of June, the jury took twenty two minutes to find him guilty of murder, and he Not was long. sentenced to death by hanging, which was carried out in the August. After which, his naked body was just buried in a quicklime pit in the jail, unmarked grave. And that's the fate of God, him. He got
2: away with it for a lot, a, a lot, really of time.
1: fucking long time.
2: But I'm I'm surprised, but I'm not because who's going to drop him in?
1: Apparently, his hair was brown and his moustache was ginger, and I'm sure it's it was Roll Dahl or someone who says that you should never trust a man whose hair and beard are different colours.
2: Well, that is a rule to live by. But it's it shows that you must have had no friends because you'd if like if you'd known if someone was confiding in you it's a secret that you wouldn't keep that one isn't it like you must have been a total loner
1: oh yeah i didn't really have any friends just what's the point though women's
2: um thank you for listening yeah thanks thank you emma for putting up with me having come straight from the gym without a shower (laughs) i'm finding the biggest i think the biggest myth of all time is that going vegan Makes you lose weight because I'm eating every fucking thing honestly (laughs) but it's because now I can rationalize everything
1: because it all seems healthy yeah well also
2: like if I went into a cafe before I was vegan I'd just go in a cafe and not get cake because I know that cake is naughty and I would regret it but then if I go in a cafe and I see a vegan cake I think oh they've made me a cake it's just for me I can't like, I can't turn down this cake. They worked so hard to make me a vegan cake. You're still... I've got to support this
1: place. The thing is, as well, you're still tasting all the vegan things. Yeah. Like, if you go to... You see a cake, like, oh, I know what that cake's going to taste like, and it's bad for me. If you see a vegan one, you're like, this might be the vegan cake to end all vegan cakes. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You've got to try everything. That's the it's rule. It's exciting time. It's very exciting, but it's very bad for me. So now I have to go to the gym all of the time. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat some salad tonight. But <laughs> no thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening. Yeah, Again, it literally doesn't matter on this podcast. You have no idea what I fucking look like anyway. Um thank you for listening. Uh donate to our Patreon at slaughter patreon.com forward slash Podcast And rate us, review us, tell your friends about us, tweet us, email us, Podcast at gmail.com Uh, write a poem about us
1: yeah draw a picture of what you think we look like yeah
2: um all of those things and remember listening to slaughter
1: doesn't make you a psycho i don't know why you always drop this on (laughs) me
2: you know it's coming running into
1: traffic does that was an easy one running into traffic does yep even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things